0: Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to Chapter 35 of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. After the chapter reading, you'll hear a conversation between me and my friend Katie Devine. Katie is a middle school social studies teacher who taught middle school language arts for many years. She and I met through a book club that has now been going for six years. We call Katie the book club historian because she has the best memory in the group. And though we met through this book club well into our 20s, we actually grew up in the same hometown. And you'll hear mention of some spots that were important to our childhoods in this conversation. That was especially fun uh, to talk about with this chapter because this chapter features Anne making new friends, but continuing to find joy in her Avonlea friendships and home. Katie and I talk about the trope of Anne being not like other girls, her growing respect for Gilbert, and her growing maturity displayed in this chapter. Chapter 35, The Winter at Queens Anne's homesickness wore off, greatly helped in the wearing by her weekend visits home. As long as the open weather lasted, the Avonlea students went out to Carmody on the New Branch Railway every Friday night. Diana and several other Avonlea young folks were generally on hand to meet them, and they all walked over to Avonlea in a merry party. Anne thought those Friday evening gypsyings over the autumnal hills in the crisp golden air, with the home lights of Avonlea twinkling beyond, were the best and dearest hours in the whole week. Gilbert Blythe nearly always walked with Ruby Gillis, and carried her satchel for her. Ruby was a very handsome young lady, now thinking herself quite as grown up as she really was. She wore her skirts as long as her mother would let her, and did her hair up in town, though she had to take it down when she went home. She had large, bright blue eyes, a brilliant complexion, and a plump, showy figure. She laughed a great deal, was cheerful and good-tempered, and enjoyed the pleasant things of life, frankly. "'But I shouldn't think she was the sort of girl Gilbert would like,' whispered Jane to Anne. Anne did not think so either, but she would not have said so for the Avery Scholarship.' She could not help thinking, too, that it would be very pleasant to have such a friend as Gilbert to jest and chatter with, and exchange ideas about books and studies and ambitions. Gilbert had ambitions, she knew, and Ruby Gillis did not seem the sort of person with whom such could be profitably discussed. There was no silly sentiment in Anne's ideas concerning Gilbert. Boys were to her, when she thought about them at all, merely possible good comrades. If she and Gilbert had been friends, she would not have cared how many other friends he had, nor with whom he walked. She had a genius for friendship, girlfriends she had in plenty, but she had a vague consciousness that masculine friendship might also be a good thing to round out one's conceptions of companionship and furnish broader standpoints of judgment and comparison. Not that Anne could have put her feelings on the matter into just such clear definition, but she thought that if Gilbert had ever walked home with her from the train, over the crisp fields and along the ferny byways, They might have had many and merry and interesting conversations about the new world that was opening around them, and their hopes and ambitions therein. Gilbert was a clever young fellow, with his own thoughts about things, and a determination to get the best out of life and put the best into it. Ruby Gillis told Jane Andrews that she didn't understand half the things Gilbert Blythe said. He talked just like Anne Shirley did when she had a thoughtful fit on, and for her part she didn't think it any fun to be bothering about books and that sort of thing when you didn't have to. Frank Stockley had lots more dash and go, but then he wasn't half as good-looking as Gilbert, and she really couldn't decide which she liked best. In the Academy, Anne gradually drew a little circle of friends about her—thoughtful, imaginative, ambitious students like herself. With the rose-red girl, Stella Maynard, and the dream girl, Priscilla Grant, she soon became intimate finding the latter pale, spiritual-looking maiden to be full to the brim of mischief and pranks and fun, while the vivid, black-eyed Stella had a heart full of wistful dreams and fancies, as aerial and Rainbow-like as Anne's own. After the Christmas holidays, the Avonlea students gave up going home on Fridays, and settled down to hard work. By this time, all the Queen's scholars had gravitated into their own places in the ranks, and the various classes had assumed distinct and settled shadings of individuality. Certain facts had become generally accepted. It was admitted that the medal contestants had practically narrowed down to three. Gilbert Blythe, Anne Shirley, and Lewis Wilson. The Avery Scholarship was more doubtful, any one of a certain six being a possible winner. The bronze medal for mathematics was considered as good as won by a fat, funny little upcountry boy with a bumpy forehead and a patched coat. Ruby Gillis was the handsomest girl of the year at the Academy. In the second-year classes, Stella Maynard carried off the palm for beauty. With small but critical minority in favor of Anne Shirley, Ethel Mar was admitted by all competent judges to have the most stylish modes of hairdressing, and Jane Andrews, plain, plodding, conscientious Jane, carried off the honors in the domestic science course. Even Josie Pye attained a certain preeminence as the sharpest-tongued young lady in attendance at Queen's. So it may be fairly stated that Miss Stacy's old pupils held their own in the wider arena of the academical course. Anne worked hard and steadily. Her rivalry with Gilbert was as intense as it had ever been in Avonlea School. Although it was not known in the class at large, but somehow the bitterness had gone out of it. Anne no longer wished to win for the sake of defeating Gilbert, rather, for the proud consciousness of a well-won victory over a worthy foeman. It would be worthwhile to win, but she no longer thought life would be insupportable if she did not. In spite of lessons, the students found opportunities for pleasant times. Anne spent many of her spare hours at Beechwood, and generally ate her Sunday dinners there and went to church with Miss Barry. The latter was, as she admitted, growing old, but her black eyes were not dim, nor the vigor of her tongue in the least abated. But she never sharpened the latter on Anne, who continued to be a prime favorite with the critical old lady. "'That Anne girl improves all the time,' she said. "'I get tired of other girls. There's such a provoking and eternal sameness about them. "'Anne has as many shades as a rainbow, and every shade is the prettiest while it lasts. "'I don't know that she is as amusing as she was when she was a child, "'but she makes me love her, and I like people who make me love them. "'It saves me so much trouble in making myself love them.'" Then, almost before anybody realized it, spring had come. Out in Avonlea, the Mayflowers were peeping pinkly out on the Sear Barrens, where snow wreaths lingered, and the mist of green was on the woods and in the valleys. But in Charlottetown, harassed Queen's students thought and talked only of examinations. "'It doesn't seem possible that the term is nearly over,' said Anne. "'Why, last fall it seemed so long to look forward to, a whole winter of studies and classes. And here we are, with the exams looming up next week.' Girls, sometimes I feel as if those exams meant everything, but when I look at the big buds swelling on those chestnut trees and the misty blue air at the end of the streets, they don't seem half so important. Jane and Ruby and Josie, who had dropped in, did not take this view of it. To them, the coming examinations were constantly very important indeed, far more important than the chestnut buds or maytime hazes. It was all very well for Anne, who was sure of passing at least, to have her moments of belittling them, but when your whole future depended on them, as the girls truly thought theirs did, you could not regard them philosophically. "'I've lost seven pounds in the last two weeks,' sighed Jane. "'It's no use to say don't worry. I will worry. Worrying helps you some. It seems as if you were doing something when you're worrying. It would be dreadful if I failed to get my license, after going to Queen's all winter and spending so much money.' "'I don't care,' said Josie Pye. "'If I don't pass this year, I'm coming back next. "'My father can afford to send me. "'And Frank Stockley says that Professor Tremaine said Gilbert Blythe was sure to get the medal "'and that Emily Clay would likely win the Avery Scholarship. "'That may make me feel badly tomorrow, Josie,' "'laughed Anne, but just now I honestly feel "'that as long as I know the violets are coming out "'all purple down in the hollow below Green Gables "'and that little ferns are poking their heads up "'in Lover's Lane, it's not a great deal of difference "'whether I win the Avery or not. "'I've done my best, and I begin to understand "'what is meant by the joy of the strife. "'Next to trying and winning, "'the best thing is trying and failing. "'Girls, don't talk about exams.' "'Look at that arch of pale green sky over those houses "'and picture to yourselves what it must look like "'over the purply-dark beechwoods back of Avonlea.' "'What are you going to wear for commencement, Jane?' "'asked Ruby practically.' "'Jane and Josie both answered at once, "'and the chatter drifted into a side eddy of fashions.' But Anne, with her elbows on the windowsill, her soft cheek laid against her clasped hands, and her eyes filled with visions, looked out unheedingly across city roof and spire to that glorious dome of sunset sky, and wove her dreams of a possible future from the golden tissue of youth's own optimism. All the beyond was hers, with its possibilities lurking rosily in the oncoming years. Each year a rose of promise to be woven into an immortal chaplet. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, I have been opening these episodes where I have a guest doing chapter reflections with me by just asking a few questions about your relationship to Anne and the book. I've been calling it a lightning round, but that's kind of funny because it's like usually 15 minutes, which is not a <laughs> lightning round at all. <laughs>
1: you're getting bookish people questions about a book
0: (laughs) yeah and I'm asking follow-ups it's just not at all a lightning round okay so I like to start by asking what's your relationship to Anne and to the books
1: so I read them for the first time I think in fourth or fifth grade at least the first like two or three um I remember my mom recommended the first book to me and like we were big library goers so we would go religiously like every two weeks to the library because that's when the next books were due and um, I just devoured Anne of Green Gables and then the library would also have like I think it was like a biannual book sale and it would be in this like big room before they remodeled like our local library Um, and they would have like paperback copies for 10 cents. You know, this was 20 years ago. So <laughs> the books are a little bit cheaper than they are now. But um, I picked up like a, a secondhand copy of Avonlea*, which I still have. And from there, I read that one. And then there was a bookshop in town called Little Professor. And I'll, like, I don't really remember much about it because it closed also, I think like 20 to 25 years ago. But um, the children slash like I guess whatever it was considered young adults at the time was kind of in the back corner and I remember the end cap that Anne of Green Gables was on and I like bought I think the next four or five books at that point um so I've read them a couple times um since then so I guess I've read them four or five times um at this point and I'm you know Reminiscing as I read through, and I forgot how much I loved Anne. She's just like such a big part of my childhood and my reading, like life and history.
0: It's funny actually that you mentioned Little Professor, the bookstore, because I have the vaguest memory of that store too. But my <laughs> uncle worked there. I That's remember. so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I miss those independent bookstores that don't really exist anymore.
1: It was like a big day because we went to Bradley's and then we would go to Little Professor. Perhaps
0: you got a slushy at Bradley's. I was never allowed to. Not allowed. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Missed out. I coveted a slushy, but then I got a book. So it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) Still good. It was more my speed anyway. (laughs) Was there,
0: or is there a particular character that you? relate to in the book or maybe attributes of a few characters that you relate to strongly and I'm wondering if that changed over time from when you first started reading the books until now
1: um I don't know I was like kind of a dramatic child in some ways so I always just like saw myself as Anne I was always Joe Marge I was always like the protagonist of every story um and in some ways especially as a little kid I was very like idealistic and very um Pollyanna-ish. I don't know how else to really describe it, but, um, I definitely saw that in Anne, you know, like saw myself in Anne. Um, and looking back, I don't know, like, I want to see how she changes over the course of the books, like reading them as an adult, because I think the last time I read them, I was like in my early twenties and now I'm 33. So, you know, I think my relationship with the characters would change a little bit. Um, I always also, I don't know if I related to him, but had such a soft spot for Matthew. Um, so I just, I just loved him. <laughs> I don't know if I saw myself in him, but I do love him. So, and I, I like Diana, uh, like how loyal she is. She's just a really good friend. And that's something we should all aspire to be. Yeah. I have a lot of respect
0: for Diana being like, she's not jealous or like envious of and she's really supportive of her and she celebrates her even when it's like Anne's being celebrated and Anne's like special and on stage and going off to school. And Diana, I don't know, is very steady. She is. Do you have a favorite um, mess up of Anne's, like a favorite mistake?
1: Uh, my favorite is when she gets drunk <laughs> on the cordial. I mean, whose isn't? Um, and the smashing of the... <laughs> The slate on Gilbert's head is another good one. Um, Those are the ones that stick out to me because I think as she grows, they become fewer and fewer. Um, When she mouths off to, oh, who's the busybody? Yeah, I like that also because (laughs) she like knows what she has to say and she says it (laughs) for better or for worse.
0: (laughs) And then I'm curious if there's a moment that sticks out to you when... An adult in Anne's life, like gave her good guidance or was just a good like supportive figure in her
1: growing up. I mean, are we doing spoilers or no? Because the next chapter, there's something.
0: Maybe we'll hold off just for just in case someone's a first Keep time. reading.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of good moments ahead. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um even I will say, like reading it again this time because I, you know, when I started back in the spring, um, I forgot how, or maybe it just didn't dawn on me as like a kid, Marilla is so abrupt with her. And like, that's reading it from like a, an adult lens in 2020. I was like, how do you, how could you say that to a child? <laughs> you know, she's 11 years old, which is the same age as my students. And like, she's, she's not being rude or bad or anything, you know, along those lines. And Marilla's is just like, like, woof. <laughs> the way that she speaks to Anne is just rough. Um, but that's why I love Matthew so much is that he's just a, such a constant, kind figure.
0: Yeah. I was really struck by that too. I had forgotten how harsh Marilla is in the beginning and how heartbreaking it is for this like traumatized little child who's being like traumatized in that moment again is there something that you take with you from Anne whether when you were reading when you were younger or maybe as you started to dive back into it recently like is there something that you take with you um, a lesson or some wisdom or just a way of looking at the world
1: I think the way that Anne looks at the world is something that we should strive for, especially like as adults or everything in the, the current climate. And, you know, it could be anything that you're going through in your life is trying to look at it from Anne's perspective. So seeking out the good is something that I don't think adults do enough. Um, you know, anytime you scroll through Facebook on your phone, you can see <laughs> that people are not doing that. Um but also just like finding beauty in everything. Like that's something that really struck me with this chapter. Um, you know, they they have practical worries. They're ending their school career and they're not, some of them are not quite sure what's happening next. And um, Anne's final thing that she reflects on is like how beautiful the sky looks and the trees, look, you know, it's just noticing beauty in the everyday, I think is really important.
0: Yeah, I think that, as I get older, I've noticed that I used to be much more naturally oriented towards that. And then it's like, Oh, am I just like a sucker? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know. It's really hard to hold on to that and feel like you're not falling behind or being um, naive or something, but
1: th- it is really important. Mm-hmm. And you can have both. Right. So yeah. like, yeah. that's another thing in this chapter. Um, you know, and is really academically oriented and really driven and she wants to be successful and she has all of these goals and she still stops and like looks around her. Um, And I don't know, I think that's something that we have to look at from a modern perspective because we are so focused on what social media is doing or what the, you know, the news apps are saying. And it's just, sometimes it's too much and you need to put the phone down and go for a walk and, you know, notice the beauty wherever you are.
0: That's a really good point. And I love when the last question brings us into the chapter, very elegant podcasting.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) In the last chapter I had Melissa on our book club friend And we talked a lot about like homesickness and kind of starting out at school, but now in this chapter, Anne, her homesickness is wearing, has worn Mm -hmm. off, we learn. And now it's more about kind of having settled into like a nice routine and like settling in at Queens, but still very connected to Green Gables and Avonlea. And I was curious if when you started to feel settled in at college yourself,
1: So actually like looking at it, it reminded me of coming home, like, because, and like she was away at school with some familiar faces, but then they would meet up with their other friends. Um, so it reminded me of like when we would come home for like Christmas break or even the summer, um, and just hearing everyone's stories and being able to hang out again before we all go back to our respective schools. Um. And, like, that age, because what is she, like, 16-ish towards that chapter? um, You don't realize, like, everything is just fun. You know, it's, like, between 16 and 22. (laughs) You just, like, I mean, you know, not saying that there aren't hardships and, like, concerns and stuff. But, like, the time with your friends is not anything like you'll ever have again. Um, And that really stood out to me because, again, when you're in it, you don't know. And now that it's been like, you know, a long time (laughs) since I've had that that moment, you know, it's like 16 years ago that I was 16, 17 years ago that I was 16. So um, thinking back to like those days, that really stood out to me because it is such a just a good, relaxed, comfortable feeling to be with your friends at that point.
0: Uh, That's a good point. And it's like, if you did know, then you wouldn't be... 16 and carefree right?
1: <laughs> like oh no what's coming ahead
0: <laughs> so we have something in this chapter after that like cozy little paragraph that is kind of a trope that annoys me but I get it but it annoys me I'm curious to hear what you think is it Ruby <laughs> it's the whole like Anne is different from other
1: girls so that she's like the first manic pixie dream girl a little bit <laughs> in some way. I love that. But I, but I still love Anne. Like, you know, the, oh, the yes. trope of the, yeah, I'm not like other girls. That is obnoxious. And like the comparison to like, I can't believe Gilbert likes a girl like that with Ruby Gillis. Like that bothers me a little bit too, but I understand I guess Anne's perspective because there is that underlying tension with Gilbert. So it's like when you know the person that you like likes somebody else and you don't really understand why they like them and not you. So I think that's Anne's. Like she doesn't come out and say it, but that's like kind of the tone. Um from my perspective at least. I don't know if you think that as well, but um I think Ellen Montgomery really just created her that way and she became like such a an influence for so many other like teen novels you know yeah I think
0: it's not like this is the whole like being critical with love thing like I love Anne it doesn't change that for me (laughs) um it was just me noticing like oh this is interesting like Because it doesn't, it's not even Anne so much. It's more like the narrator and even Miss Barry actually, because Miss Barry a little later in the chapter Mm -hmm. says, um, Miss Barry says, I get tired of other girls. There is such a provoking and eternal sameness about them. Anne has as many shades as a rainbow and every shade is the prettiest while it lasts. And, you know, so like Miss Barry's like, she literally like, I get tired of other girls. They're all the same, but Anne. And, um... And yeah, like, I mean, Anne is a little bit perplexed by Gilbert hanging out with Ruby, but it's also, I think, just the narrator kind of being like, listen, Ruby's not exactly the sharpest tool in the (laughs) shed, okay? You know, like, not sure why she's messing around with Gilbert. And like, I think she's also showing that like, Ruby and Gilbert are just not well suited to each other. Like, there's that other guy, is his name Frank? Yeah, yeah. And Ruby's like, I don't know who I like better because Frank, his temperament seems much more suited to Ruby's personality, but he's not as handsome as Gilbert. (laughs) And so like, (laughs) she is just showing like, oh, like Gilbert and Anne are like intellectual, good intellectual matches. So like, Mm -hmm. there's totally something to that, but there's just like a, a whiff of like, not like other girls that, you know, Uh, the more like when it permeates the culture a lot and every book is like the heroine is different and other girls are stupid and silly and boring and like shallow i'm just like oh come on
1: i i had noticed that um especially like looking at that chapter more deeply um it could have been the emphasis that she was trying to take like how much anne has kind of, like, matured over the course of her childhood, like, since she came to Green Gables. Um, But, yeah, it's, and it's, it feels a little forced and a little pushed at that point, too. Um, And I don't, the the commentary from, like, the other girls about Ruby is a little, like, oh, that's really petty. Okay, (laughs) you know.
0: I feel like Anne tries to see the beauty in everything, and so it's almost unlike, not that I don't think Anne is even doing it that much in this chapter, but it's almost unlike Anne to dismiss people, I guess, without like being like, oh, but this is what's like really good and beautiful about this person.
1: Mm-hmm. When they were starting to talk about like, like when they were breaking down the who's who, I forgot yeah. what they're called. The superlatives kind of. Yeah. Yes. That is the word that I could not say. Um, like that was a little strange too. I thought like the she's like well she, Ruby Gillis is the prettiest, but I'm <laughs> really smart. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's like Anne
0: is like the second, for, or like a there's a minority who thinks that Anne is the prettiest in the in right yeah, class a small minority. And- <laughs> of oh, a, a small but critical minority in favor of <laughs> Anne Shirley. Like the way that that's written is really funny. It's very like it's I, I get that she's she's like showing how younger immature people mm-hmm. well and not even just younger people but like we do that like we do judge each other and we do like like decide like oh that's the prettiest girl in the class or whatever.
1: And they are 16. So I guess that is par for the course even today, you know? Yeah. But it's like, it's still
0: like, oh, I kind of wish that, I wish people didn't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In reading that section, I was curious to ask you, like, as a teacher, do you notice kids doing that to each other? Like deciding like, oh, so-and-so is the smartest in the class and -and so-and-so is the prettiest. And like, do you notice that from your side of the classroom?
1: I, yeah, we do. Um, It's funny teaching sixth grade too, because you get to see them really grow over the course of the year. You know, like obviously this year is not typical, but in September, they're all like terrified of everything. They're afraid of the lockers. They're afraid of each other. They're afraid of teachers. They're afraid of, you know, upperclassmen. They're afraid of doors. It's like everything. They're afraid of everything. Um, But then when they start settling in, so I would say like late September, early October, there are kids who kind of are, um, they start to become standouts as far as academics go, um, sports, even, you know, like it, it starts to come to everyone else's attention. Um, so even this year, like I've had kids say like, oh, so-and-so he he'll get everything right. And, you know, they don't really even have that much interaction this year. So I find that kind of funny. Um, and you know, they, they start to pinpoint towards the end of sixth grade, if they want to go to one of like the specialized magnet high schools and like, that's when it really amps up and they're very competitive Mm
0: -hmm. so it's so interesting how we do that we do it so early and like young but just like in general how quick we are to just like peg people Mm -hmm. and just be like put that like for better or for worse I feel like it really can sometimes put people in a box and for me it's so interesting now like I'm a solid 10 years out of high school a little bit more. Mm. And it's interesting to look at like where people are even 10 years out and be like, Oh, everyone like wrote that person off, but they're doing this like really cool thing or like everyone thought that person was going to like do such and such, but they're doing something totally different. And I don't know. So reading that whole like section about kind of like, I mean, a lot of it has to do with looks um, and like style But, um, and even like Josie Pye is the sharpest tongue young lady in attendance. (laughs) Um, But it isn't, it is just interesting how like we do that so young.
1: I would say too, it's hard. Sometimes if a kid does like a thing one time that becomes their thing. And like, that's not right either. You know, again, for better or for worse, sometimes they do like a really great thing. And then that was like a (laughs) one-off or, you know, they make one mistake and then that sticks with them. You know, I I feel like kids are nicer to each other's faces from what I see. Um, but there's more stuff online now. Like, I feel like when I was in middle school, everyone was just like mean to each other. Like that was just the thing. Middle school, nobody was nice. Nobody looked nice. Everyone just looked terrible and was mean that that was middle school. But now like in person, they seem to be very kind to each other. I have a lot of kids that are very helpful to one another. Um, but like, you know, they have all these like Finsta grams, which are fake Instagrams um, where it's just like, Oh, that's not cool. That's not cool. Um, but like, it's always good. I try to encourage the like shy and quiet kids, but like you can, t- you can tell when a kid is really striving to do the best that they can. Um, or if they don't understand a concept, but then are really pushing to make sure that they're improving and you know, when you applaud a kid like that or you bring it like if you recognize that um, sometimes it, it'll change their entire demeanor and then they are, they're more confident with their peers and that that makes a world of difference for sure. So.
0: Yeah, that's really nice to remember. Um, Makes me think of plain plotting conscientious <laughs> being, like man. But she is does have the honor in the domestic science course. So I guess she got recognized for that. (laughs) We
1: all have something, Victoria. We all have something.
0: (laughs) One thing that I do find interesting and cool is how Anne is starting to like really respect Gilbert, recognizing, oh, he's actually like a really interesting person. Like maybe it would be interesting to be friends Mm -hmm. with him. Their competition is more now about her recognizing that he's a really worthy, like, opponent for lack of a better mm. word and that that in and of itself is gratifying it's not so much about like i need to destroy Gosh. him it's like <laughs> so that kind of development with gilbert
1: yeah i am um, i love like gilbert as a character too um especially like in the later books and I really do now want to reread the entire series, but they like make each other better in a way, you know, they like definitely antagonize each other when they're children, but, um, as they get older, they realize the value in each other. Um, and I think that this chapter is like the turning point for Anne to really understand, um, that like, just because someone else is good at something doesn't make them your enemy. That's the other thing, you know? So, um, what you had said. Um, about Gilbert not being the um, antagonist. They can grow together as friends and it doesn't have to be this like com- academic combat. They're
0: passionate about similar things. They're just, there's they're something about like their souls that you're getting the feeling is even the way that they're both ambitious. Like they're just, there's something about them that is um, akin to each other. And I don't know. It made me actually think about when I started dating my boyfriend, Martin, and just when I was like, oh, like something about us is, I don't know, like we're made of the same stuff somehow, even though we're really different.
1: Yes. And that makes a world of difference too. Like when you are involved with someone who has enough similarities that it's like comfortable and that you meet on the same plane, whether it's like intellectually or, you know, sense of humor or whatever. Um, but like different enough to not get boring. <laughs> I think that's like a big part of it. Um, and yeah, again, it speaks to her maturity, you know, over the course of the story. Yeah. I, I like what
0: you said about kind of being like different enough that it's not boring too. Because I, I it was making me think of, Um, having my first date with Martin and how we were at a coffee shop for like six hours just talking about stuff and we didn't agree on everything like we were arguing about some stuff but it was like you know you can't necessarily just sit and talk with just anyone for six hours so Mm -hmm. you know
1: did I ever tell you what I was worried about with Dan no that he was going to be too nice and Melissa actually was like, what does that even mean? That's when it's too nice. I was like, I'm a little too nice.
0: <laughs> I get the sense that you guys are intellectually like in very, you you occupy similar but like different enough interest mm-hmm. spaces. Like you both are really interested in like history and things like that, but probably different,
1: you Yeah, know,
0: not entirely the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, we like a lot of the same things and Hull always like he is – very, um, willing to read or listen to anything that like, or watch, you know, anything that I want to. Um, and you know, we try to, we try to balance it out, but we do watch like a lot of the same shows and listen to a lot of the same like music and stuff, but, um, it's a nice balance. Um, but like, he's definitely like the smartest guy that I've ever (laughs) (laughs) dated. Or like been involved with. Obviously, I'm married to him now. But um, and that that helps a lot too, because we can talk about like the books that we're reading and the things that we watch or the articles that we read. And it's not it's not a stagnant conversation. I think that's important. And I I think that's something with Anne and Gilbert, right? That they don't have stagnant conversations.
0: I think it's actually really cool when you think about them having a relationship that their relationship has to start with an act of forgiveness because Mm -hmm. I think relationships like forgiveness is such a huge part of relationships, like on a small level and then on bigger levels too. So I actually think it's like pretty cool that it has to start with an act of forgiveness and just from the get-go, it's like, well, clearly we're not perfect. So let's like, I'm going too far ahead, but I do find that that's also like a very mature thing as opposed to just starting out with like everything seemingly perfect right and then falling from grace at some
1: point <laughs> <laughs> but again I, like I, I feel like the big theme of this chapter is like growth and maturity and that that speaks to their relationship as well you know forgiveness is something that like sometimes you don't want to do it <laughs> you might be set in your ways but it is you know another thing that is in every relationship right you have to have the openness to forgive if someone does you know mess up or says something or you know whatever um so it's time to to forgive for them I guess
0: so I liked what you're saying about like the um the kind of theme of maturity and growth because we do definitely see Anne's perspective widening like as you said the way that she's kind of seeing the bigger scope of things she says like I've done my best and I'm beginning to understand what is meant by the joy of the strife mm-hmm. next to trying and winning the best thing is trying and failing so yeah it's like very mature and very kind of like what happens happens case or else or else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she's still super ambitious so I thought that was a really good point that you made and I was just kind of curious like what your what your relationship is to that, like balancing like the, I'm going to take this seriously and try my best and I'm going to like let
1: go of what I can't control. So letting go is really hard for me. <laughs> me <laughs> I too. I <laughs> extremely type A and hate when I don't have a control over a situation. So when other people react in ways that I don't anticipate, I can't handle that sometimes and it like really gets under my skin. Um, which is a problem that I know and I'm working on that. but um, you know, it going with the flow is like one of the qualities that I most wish that I had, um, because I so do not. Um, so also to speak to that, I am a procrastinator. so I'm a perfectionist procrastinator who um, hates when things don't go her way. So that's a really bad combination. <laughs> too I'm so with you (laughs) like like I want to do well but sometimes I don't want to put in the effort or I'll wait till like the last moment and you know I mean I'm doing fine but like sometimes these things it does catch up with me and I don't look at the big picture um my sister is very much like like my sister's one of the most positive people I've ever met in my entire life and I wouldn't say I'm negative but I'm definitely more critical um She's an ENFP and I'm an ENFJ. (laughs) So we're very similar in some regards, but she just like looks at the bright side all the time. And I really admire that in her. Um, And I think it depends on what it is. Like if it's a life situation, I seem to be more, I have like the wherewithal to kind of look at everything. But if it's a career or school situation, I might not have, the ability to balance to look at it in a balanced way um and again that's that probably plays to the perfectionism side you know um so i that's an interesting question because i never really thought about it too much but um yeah balance is balance is hard and i appreciate that in Anne,
0: <laughs> does it ever bother you when your sister is really positive in the way that you know Anne's friends are like well, that's good for you, but actually I have to worry. And you know what, actually, Jane says something that cracked me up because this is something that like psychologists will be like, so just so you know, worrying might feel productive, but it's not. Um, Jane, poor Jane, I've lost seven pounds in the last two weeks when they're studying for exams. And she says, it's no use to say, don't worry. I will worry. Worrying helps you some. It seems as if you were doing something when you're worrying. And it's so funny because that's like a classic psychological thing that like worrying mm-hmm. feels productive. Um, so I'm curious, like, does worrying feel productive to you? And do you ever get <laughs> mad at your sister when she's being
1: positive? Um, I don't know what it's not like or what it's like to not worry. So that question is really difficult for me because I really can't process that. Like worrying is my constant state. Um, so the thing that like drives me nuts is like I'll ask for an opinion or advice. And she's like, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm like, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. What does that mean? And I give like a list of things. She's like, does it, does it affect A, B or C? And I'm like, no. And she's like, then don't worry about it. I was like, well, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. So, you know, that's when it gets frustrating because I'm crazy and she's not. <laughs> I don't think you're crazy. We stress about different things though, too. You know, it's like, I think again, it's it's all situational, but um, my my cross to bear is <laughs> constant worry and strife. Yeah. So I'm also like Jane in the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so interesting. Like,
0: yeah, I do think that I often use worrying as a form of like trying to control. Like, well, if I worry about it enough, then the bad thing won't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Maybe or whatever. And it's like a very vulnerable place to be to try to like, not do that. Because at the end of the day, I think it's like, because you care so much. It's like you care about the person that you're worrying about, or Mm -hmm. you care about the work that you're doing or whatever. So um, yeah, Anne is just this little like Zen master in this chapter.
1: (laughs) I will say when I like, I look at Anne and think about Anne as a character, like, especially I think the first question you asked, like, how do I identify with her? I think about her as like an 11 year old where everything is dramatic and everything is this whole big, you know, conundrum and, you know, whatnot. And that's still the part of her character that does stick with me, even as she matures. Like I can recognize that she is matured in the later chapters and like I think as a whole I have also matured you know from the time that I was a child but like the um over the top part of the character still stands out to me Mm. I think that's interesting that like the first impression of Anne is you know this idealistic melodramatic very sweet but you know still very dramatic kind of middle school student because that's really what she would be now but um you know as she grows throughout the book she definitely her character adjusts a little bit I wouldn't say it changes but it adjusts
0: yeah and it's interesting how there's like a very clear line from like her connection to nature and the Mm -hmm. landscape and her sense of like peace and well-being And I was just curious, like as you know, as you identified, like that you are a worrier. (laughs) You you do spend a lot of time in that state. But are there things that like help you get like a little more grounded or present or try to put things in perspective a little more? In the way that like you know, just kind of like looking at nature and being in nature and being at home, I think for Anne, like gives that for her.
1: Yeah, I think that the comfort level is really important. I like, going for a walk has been such a good, like, therapeutic escape for me, Um, just because I'm finding, I think, as we all are, I'm just, like, sitting a lot more these days, too, and so my energy has nowhere to go. Um, You know, in the winter, it's a little bit more difficult because New Jersey is cold, but um, just, like, listening to music or being outside and, you know, trying to get myself moving definitely helps. Um, so I can, I can relate to that a little bit too, you know, just being outside and, you know, again, trying to notice the, the beauty everywhere, even if it's a suburban street or, you know, (laughs) the parking lot, as I walk to my car, I try to notice, you know, some, there's something good everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think actually it shows that even Anne is starting to notice it more around, you know, Queens, because when she first got there, she was just like, oh, it's nothing but like dirty city streets. And now mm-hmm. she's she sees, um, you know, she's talking about the misty blue air at the end of the streets mm-hmm. um, and the buds on the chestnut trees. So she's noticing even in the environment that at first she was like, oh, like it's so ugly here. But she's like coming to see it mm-hmm. there, too at our book club meeting this past weekend when I like went, I went on a five minute ramble about the great swamp. Um,
1: (laughs) I (laughs) was here for that conversation. I just want to say, I support you. (laughs) (laughs) But I honestly, like
0: when I started going there this summer, like the first time I went and well, every time I go Anne is in my mind, but the first time I went, especially because I just walked into this meadow of these like bright yellow and purple flowers and, um, the these like streams and and all these birds and I was like oh my gosh Anne would love it here <laughs> like she would just love it and I kept going back and like as the seasons change I think about how Anne sees beauty in every season and even now it's like I was like oh you know I, I'm i excited to go there in the snow like I want to see what it looks like in the snow and I credit some of that to like reading Anne and just being a little bit in her seeing the world through her eyes a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I I really love that actually. And I feel like if we, I know I'm kind of repeating myself from earlier, but if we don't really think about our surroundings and if we don't try to make a space for that in our lives, we can get caught up in everything else that's going on. And it's just, I think as adults in the modern era, I mean, you just need a break and Walking around and looking at the trees is really not a bad way to take a break, you know.
0: Naming a tree, maybe if you right, really I like would. T-
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I just find myself wondering, like, to circle back to something: Would
1: Anne have a Instagram? No, she wouldn't. She, she wouldn't. would just lay it all out in her actual Instagram. Yeah. Or would she even have social media? She'd have Instagram, I think. I don't think <laughs> she'd have a face. Well. Young Anne would have had a Facebook and then she would hold on to it just to chat with her old friends, but she would definitely have an Instagram. I don't think she, she wouldn't get involved with like Twitter.
0: She doesn't have time for that. She would want to post the really beautiful photos of the landscape, right? Right. She would
1: do one of the Instagrams that like people have that they don't do any captions. They just like post a picture Mm -hmm. and then maybe like a leaf emoji. Like that's what, (laughs) that's what Anne would do. (laughs) I love that her stories would just be like Joni Mitchell songs (laughs) (laughs) like her going for a walk with Joni Mitchell playing in the background
0: I think that's spot on um I love how it ends with her like just looking out the window and like dreaming and we don't even know like what she's dreaming about she's just dreaming with the the golden tissue of youth's optimism um
1: I love that last line I know I think the feeling of peace she feels at the end is just also something to take away. Um, because sometimes when you're out of your element, like she was out of her element when she first got to the school. Um, and then, you know, as she gained comfortability and excelled in her studies, she kind of just like letting it go at the end. And she's like, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. And that's, you know, that goes, and reflects on the sense of control or lack of control that one also could have. But, um, at the end, I wonder if it's almost like, I don't know if this is weird to say this or not, but if it's like a religious reference, cause she mm-hmm. talks about a chaplet and a chaplet is usually like a set, a set number of prayers that you pray at certain times of the day.
0: Interesting. I love looking at this book, which I I don't think I really would have before, but I love looking at the spirituality of Anne. I just think it's so beautiful. And spiritual maturity, I think, is something to really like that I'm also taking from the book. Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like a lot of writers, especially back then, like, I don't know, the majority of the population in the published world was... Christian, right? So, like most and the, like white Christian people, that's what most books published before, you know, 1930 were written by. Um, but it's not overtly religious. Um, but the way that she peppers in just even commenting on like the majesty of beauty, like that's a big theme in a lot of religious doctrine. Um, I think that's interesting too. Yeah. So
0: she'll poke fun at ministers and things like that. And then Mm -hmm. Anne will come out with things like Jesus looks really nice. Like I want to be close to him or like, I want to, I can't remember. There's a scene where she like sees a picture of Jesus with children and she has this very kind of like deep, like personal feeling from it. Mm -hmm. And Marilla's like, ah, that's, you know, like that's weird. (laughs) She, You get this sense that she's actually more deeply spiritual than people who have been going to church like all their lives, some mm. of them. So it's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually want to like delve more into Ellen Montgomery's life mm. um, and just see what her relationship was. And if that's a theme that'll come up like in the later books, like I wonder if it's just, cause it's been years since I reread yeah. them. Um, if it's just in this one or if it comes up later, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I think you're right that it's like, subtle enough that it doesn't hit you over the head with anything but if you're looking for it there are some Mm like gems there yeah well thank you for doing this with me I know you're exhausted after teaching during a pandemic (laughs)
1: Um, so (laughs) all in a day's work
0: (laughs) so thank you for bringing your attention and all your thoughts about Anne it was really lovely
1: thank you for having me